So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 12th chapter, the 4th through the 7th verses. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. It's pretty deep, folks. So give us attention. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, as we delve into this, let us see what Jesus is telling us. Let us see how central it is to the gospel, to the doctrines that we believe in, to our own salvation and to our own eternity. Dear Lord, not, let not my words confuse, but rather clarify. May your word be brought home to us this morning, and may the words that I speak be the very words that you would have me speak, or may they die in my throat and never be uttered. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Apostle John, under the influence or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his first epistle, uh, wrote these words. He said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with judgment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He talks about a relationship with a God of love and there being no fear that is in that. Now, we're, we're taking those words a little bit out, out of, of, of context, and I'll explain that later on. But compare that to what Jesus says in the text that we have before us. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So which is it? Are we supposed to fear or are we not supposed to fear? Do we have a conflict here in Scripture? Is John saying something different than what Jesus is saying? And then we can actually look at just the passage I just read, and, and we can ask ourselves, is, is this kind of a conflict? Jesus starts out by saying, telling us not to fear, and then he turns to God and he says, fear him, and then he comes back and he says, don't fear him. Which is it? Are we supposed to fear him or are we not supposed to fear him? Of course, we don't have a conflict and we know that. We never have a conflict in the infallible word of God. In fact, we have one of the core doctrines of the church that we need to understand. Now, we probably do have a paradox. A paradox is something that looks like it might be a conflict or looks like it might be confused, but actually isn't. And so that's what I want to bring out. As I said, this is... This is highlighting uh, really one of the core doctrines of the gospel. And so we're going to share from this passage this morning three essential truths, two of them explicit, one of them implicit. And they are simply these so that you can mull them over as we go through. Number one, fear God. Number two, fear hell. Number three, run to Jesus because he is the only one who can save you from the one and reconcile you to the other. And that's what we're going to bring out 
in our text this morning. Now, as far as the context is concerned, as we have made our way through this particular part of Luke's gospel, we have seen that he is sort of interweaving uh, three different themes. We started out with a theme of sanctification. We talked about the means of grace. And one of the reasons that sanctification was so important within the church is because when Jesus came with what we call the cosmic initiative, bringing the light of heaven into the darkness of this world, and the darkness fought back with what we have called Satan's diabolical countermeasures, a spiritual war results. And we're still in the midst of that spiritual war today. And so therefore, for the kingdom needs strong, obedient, disciplined, battle-ready saints that are willing and ready to engage in that war. And then last week, we saw a third uh, theme that had sort of been uh, woven all the way through that, and that was the theme of the hypocrisy of the enemies of Christ, particularly the human agents of evil who were standing against him, who were accusing him uh, of working under the power of Satan, who they had this major confrontation at a luncheon where Jesus uh, uh, brought out their great hypocrisy hypocrisies and and then we saw them begin to plot and plan and scheme to to prepare a, 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 an ambush for him so that they could try to destroy him and then last week we saw where he turned to his disciples and said beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy and we noticed that the particular brand of hypocrisy that he was talking about was the externalized institutionalized religion now we, we saw several reasons that he was warning us against that leaven. One of them, of course, was that it tends to destroy both your own faith and the faith of the church, making its way through you like leaven in the midst of dough. But I think that there's another reason that Jesus warns his disciples because as he was speaking, this group of Pharisees is plotting and planning to kill him, to find a way to trip him up and kill him. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says that, you know, the servant's not above his master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And so you need to be ready. But in our passage this morning, he's going to say, don't fear them. Don't fear what they can do to you. Boldly go and share the gospel in all the world. And that is what we're going to see in our text this morning. So with that said, sort of as a backdrop, for uh, an essential backdrop to what we're going to see, let's turn to that text. Look in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, now just look at that address and notice the way that Jesus starts this out. Several times in this passage, he is going to use that modified truth formula. I tell you, very similar to the verily, verily, I say to you that he uses elsewhere to set this off as an essential teaching, one that all all disciples as well as ourselves needs to perk up and listen to. But notice that he refers to his disciples, and he is still talking to his disciples now, notice that he refers to them as friends. Now, this is the only place in the synoptic gospels where that word is used to describe 
a disciple. Uh, now, it is used in John. We'll look at that in a moment. But um, the, it, normally, it's not used in, in, in this. But it brings up a very interesting point that I want to go ahead and make because it's sort of a, another backdrop to the points that we are going to see. In the book of John, in his upper room discourse, John um, uh, records Jesus is saying this, you are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. Now, make sure you see that qualification. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Um, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus says, basically, I'm calling you now friends. But notice that he does not say, he says, I'm not calling you servants. But he doesn't say you're not a servant. He doesn't say that you're no longer a servant. He says, no, I'm calling you something that is beyond that. I am calling you a friend. I have a close, a personal relationship with those that I love, those that I came to save, those who are my disciples, those who put their trust and their belief in, 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 in me. But we don't want to take that too far as it has been taken in evangelical circles today to where Jesus is just our buddy. He's just our chum. And, and, and we, we water him down and we diminish his deity to the point that he's just another person on the bus like us. Because that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Look, look at it this way. I mean, if, you, if you're confused about the idea of Jesus being a friend and, and then remaining that you're a servant, just imagine, and, and I don't want you to imagine that you're part of the royal family over in England, but just imagine that you're part of a royal family in some great kingdom where there is a sovereign king. And that sovereign king happens to be your older brother, two or three children in between you and that older uh, brother. You grew up together. You love each other. You had fun together. You're the best of friends. You played together. You got into mischief together. And now, even though he's the king, you are still great friends. But if he, as king, makes an edict or sets a law or makes a command, then you are bound to follow that just like every other subject or servant in the kingdom. Now, expand that infinitely, and that's the relationship that we should have with Jesus. Yes, he's our friend, but he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you had a brother who was king and he made an edict and you said, I choose not to follow that What do we call that? Treason. Multiply that by an infinity. And that's what happens when your friend Jesus says, you're my friend if you do what I command you. So we need to put that into perspective because later on we're going to talk about fear and the God of love and how actually does that fit together. Well, with that as the address, he goes on and he says, do not fear those who kill the body. And afterward, after that, have nothing more that they can do. Now, I believe, I, I, I can't verify this, but I believe that Jesus is referring to the Pharisees here. The Pharisees are plotting and planning to kill him, and I think that he is using them as an object lesson. Don't fear those guys. Now, in that sense, there have been Pharisees, enemies of the gospel, ever since then, right up till today. There are enemies of the gospel that want to see the gospel thwarted. They want to see it destroyed. They don't want to hear the name of Jesus anymore. Jesus says, 
don't fear them. Because the only thing that they can actually do is to kill the body. The only thing they can do is to kill you physically. And some of you say, well, that's enough. I, I, don't, I don't think I, 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 I want that to be. But um, I, I, I think that there is a, a way for us to look at this. Uh, um, I don't think any Christian should fear um, death in that sense. I don't think any of us should fear um, looking at the end of our lives. That does not mean that you should not fear dying. I, I can remember being in one of Dr. Sproul's classes uh, one evening, and, and a student asked him a question very similar to this, Dr. Sproul, do you fear death? And I like the way that he answered it. He, he said, no, I don't. In, in one sense, I actually look forward to it. I long for death. Like Paul, I long to be with Christ because I know as soon as I leave this world, I go to a much better world. He says, but I fear dying. (laughs) You know, I fear the pain of dying. I don't want to go through any pain and I certainly don't want to go through any violent pain. And so most of us would fall into that. If you don't, if you look forward to the violent pain of dying, then there might be something wrong with you. But I think that all of us as Christians, we need to recognize recognize that this life is not all there is. And that's what I believe Jesus is hinting. He's sort of setting us up for the next verse. Because notice he says, don't fear those who can only take your life. And after that, they cannot do anything to you. That's a hint of an afterlife. That's a hint that this life is not all there is. Now, In the world in which we live, people don't like to talk about the afterlife. They don't like to talk about a life after death because they've bought into the lie that we are just animals and that when we die, uh, we just go back to dust, uh, the dust from which we came, and there is nothing out there. Well, that's not the teaching of Scripture, and that is certainly not the teaching of Jesus. This statement that he makes here would make absolutely no sense unless there is an afterlife. Because after all, if death is the ultimate uh, tragedy, if death is the ultimate end, then who cares what they do to you after you're dead? You're not going to know it. So Jesus is definitely, without a doubt, setting us up for what comes next, which is the, the, the discussion, a real discussion of fearing death and what happens after it. And so let's take a look at that. Look now in the fifth verse. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is a huge verse, brothers and sisters. Let's take a look at it. Starts out by saying, I warn you. Now, that, that's not as strong a word. Remember last week we talked about the word beware, and that was a very strong word. Really watch out for that. The, to warn, the way that Jesus uses this word is more or less a, an instruction. Let me put it out for you. Let me lay it on the line. Let me put all my cards on the table. Let me explain to you the way that it is. Let me reveal reality to you. Whatever your preconceptions are, let me tell you what the truth is. That's exactly what this means. So he's going to guide his uh, disciples. He's going to tell them of what it uh, what it actually is. He says, do not, he's already said, do not uh, 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 fear those who can kill the body, but I will tell you who to fear. Now notice that he uses pronouns here. Who, whom, who. 
He, he's not talking about a, an evil force. He's not talking about something that's out. He's talking about a person. So notice also that he doesn't tell you who the person is. He, he, he doesn't come out and say who you should actually fear. And that, unfortunately, has led some people to think that he's talking about Satan. But that's ridiculous. Satan has no power over life and death. Satan does not have the authority, nor does he have the power to throw you into hell. And after all, as John MacArthur points out in his, in, in his commentary, Satan is not the ruler of hell. I, I, that's a terrible misconception that he is going to go down to hell and be crowned as king of that dark place. No, he is the most notorious inmate and is going to occupy the most hideous place within that, that, that prison. He will be punished more than anyone else will be punished. And so therefore, don't look to him to be the king. Don't look at him sitting on a throne in hell because that ain't, that's not going to happen. So therefore, this is not, Jesus is not saying fear Satan because he can tempt you and cause you to fall into hell. We're not supposed to fear Satan, folks. That, that, that's not what we're called to do. We're, we're called to flee him. We're called to resist him. We're called to recognize his temptation. We're called to recognize that he has much power. He's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But we're not to fear him because Jesus is on our side. We have the A team and, and Satan is, is only allowed to do what he does because sometimes it fits into God's plan. So you don't need to fear Satan, especially if you are a Christian. But I will tell you who to fear. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Fear him. Now, the hymn is God, folks. Yes, Jesus is telling you in, no, in, in no, no way, form, or fashion. There's no way to doubt this emphatically using imperatives. These are almost commands that he is giving you. Fear God. Because God is the one who can send your soul to destroy body and soul in hell, as Matthew says it. There's two words that I need to explain here. What does Jesus mean by hell? Hell is not a word that we like to talk about. It has been wished away in our culture. People don't believe in hell anymore, you know, because they don't like the idea of hell. So we need to talk about hell and what it is, and then we need to talk about fear, who it is, and in what way we are supposed to fear God, and especially in the light of what we read earlier from John the Apostle, that true love has no fear. Well, let's look at the word that Jesus uses, because it's important. When he says hell, what is translated as hell, he uses the word Gehenna. And many of you know what that means, but let me make sure that you really know what it means. Gehenna is referring to a, a, a valley that is just south and west of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, it, it, it's, it's not just a place where dead people were. That, that's the misconception about Gehenna. You need to know the history of Gehenna just a little bit to understand the implication of what Jesus is saying here when he refers to it as an illustration of hell. If you look at some of the older maps of Jerusalem, you will notice that there is a valley to the south and coming around to the west of that old city. Remember, it was built on top of the Moriah Mountains, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. And there's a the Valley of Kidron that is on the east and on the west and to the south was a valley that will be called Gehenim. 
because it was owned by a man named Hinnom and later by the sons of Hinnom. And I am told that it was a beautiful valley at one time. And when you refer to it as Gehenna, basically that's the Hebrew that just simply means the, the land of Hinnom, the place of Hinnom, his property. But somewhere along the line, and I'm not exactly sure when that happened, they built a high place in the middle of that valley, a big, tall mound, probably down towards the southern end of it. And in that mound, they dug a big, deep pit, and they filled it with wood. And they used to light the most powerful fires there, and they had an altar on that high place, and they called it Topheth. And unspeakable things began to happen in that valley on that high place. They began with Ahaz, who was the father of the good king um, Hezekiah. They began to sacrifice their young, burn them alive in that great fire, sacrifice to the gods of the, of the pagans, to Baal, and to a god named Molech. Well, Hezekiah came along, he was a good king, and he tore it all down, or at least to a degree. But then his son, perhaps the most famous apostate of this time, Manasseh, came along and he rebuilt it. And this is what we read about him in 2 Kings. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah or an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven, that's all of the pagan gods, and served them. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He actually built idols, um, altars to sacrifice to idols within the very temple. All of this is happening in the shadow of the temple. And, and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. No small wonder why. Jeremiah t- t- gives us the idea that, that these were not the only two kings that did this, that throughout the history, now we're heading up to the exile. In fact, we're right at the cusp of the Assyrian exile at this time, where God just says, I've had enough of this stiff-necked people, and he allowed them to be carted off. But Jeremiah, writing the words of the Lord, says this, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moses. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Finally, a good king, Josiah, came along and defiled or destroyed Topheth so that it could not be used anymore. But the valley by that time was cursed. Too many evil and wicked things had occurred in it. So the only thing that the valley was any good for from that point on was for the people of Jerusalem to throw their garbage into it. So it became a garbage dump. They threw their dung in there. They threw the the carcasses of dead animals and even the corpses of criminals who had been um, executed and did not deserve a proper um, uh, uh, burial. So they would throw their bodies into that place. So it was a place of horrible smells and and of of a curse and, and unspeakable evil. It was a place where there was always a fire burning and where bodies could be seen totally covered by maggots and worms, and it was an awful place. 
But don't think it's just a place of the dead. When Jesus uses the term Gehenna, he's referring to a place of torture. He's referring to a place where innocent young children were burned alive. He's referring to a place where evil lurked and where um, sin was evident. It's a place, yes, a place of deadness, but it is also a place of, of unspeakable defilement. That's what he means when he uses the term Gehenna to describe hell. Brothers and sisters, one thing that Jesus made absolutely clear to us is that hell is not a place you want to be. But what is so important about this right here, at least in, uh, I think in the context of the story, is that Jesus establishes hell as a real place. In, in other words, it's not a metaphor, folks. It's not a metaphor for the grave. That was used in the Old Testament. That is Sheol. That is not at all what this is. He is talking about a real place. And what he is doing is using a visual place that is right in front of everyone, that everyone knew the history of, to illustrate it and say, this is what hell is like. Now, is hell a place where we burn, or not we, God forbid, um, where people burn completely and totally over and over and over again and are reconstituted in the, when the worms can, I mean, the, the idea is horrific. It's horrible to even think about. Or, or, or is that just expressing the darkness and the evil of the place that, that we would be sent to? But whatever it is, we know that hell is a place that Jesus wanted to make sure we did not go to. Now, the problem with hell, folks, is that just like no one really fears God anymore, no one fears hell. And the reason that people don't fear hell is because they don't believe in it. A really great way to not fear something is to wish it away, to act like it's not there, to form in your mind that a good God and a, and a loving God would never, ever send me to hell or send anyone to hell. Not that kind of place. Well, someone needs to tell Jesus because he makes it clear that this is not the kind of place that you want to go. So 39% of the people living in this country right now who do not believe in God, who've never been to church, who have never given him the, 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 the worship that he deserves, do not care about their sins, flaunted in his face, 39% of those people believe that they're going to go to heaven. How did they get that idea? What on earth would make them think that if there is a heaven, that the God that they deny would actually invite them in and give them that blessing? You know where they got it? The church. That's where they get it. There's an amazing statistic. Pew Research does a lot of this kind of research. And in 2021, they ran a poll on this. And what they found out, as I said, 39% of the pagans believe they're going to go to heaven. 45% of the Christian church believes that the pagans are going to go to heaven. 68% of Roman Catholics believe that the pagans will go to heaven or people from any other uh, religion. 56% of mainstream Protestants believe that even those who deny God and deny Christ go to heaven. 45% total. 
the whole church. Only 39% of pagans believe they're going to go to heaven, but 45% of the church believes they're going to go to heaven. And you wonder why things are so upside down. They get it because the church has decided that they don't like the idea of hell. And so you rewrite what God says and you rewrite what Jesus says. So brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to know here is that hell is real. And Jesus makes it clear that it is real. And when he uses the word Gehenna, please listen to me. When he uses the word Gehenna, he's not talking about annihilation. He's not talking about something that happens in this life, heaven and hell, or here on earth. No, Jesus says, fear him who kills. Okay, God kills. You need to realize that. Feel the one who, after he has killed, has the power and authority to send your soul to hell. Okay, that happens after death. That is not something that happens in this life. And it is not annihilation. It is not a temporary situation. It is forever and ever and ever. And that is something that is made so absolutely clear. It is not a place of the dead. It is a place of anguish and pain and misery and suffering along the lines of that that was felt by the innocent children of Ahaz and Manasseh who were burned alive. That's what Jesus is saying when he uses the word Gehenna. Well, that's the first word. Second word is, what on earth does, it, does he mean when he says, fear God? Fear the one. Obviously, he's talking about God. Fear the one. It's personal. It's not a, uh, a, a fear of evil or, or, or feel the idea of hell. Fear the one who is, has the power and authority to send you to hell. It is a real fear. The word that he uses is a word that means this, to be, an ap- to be in an apprehensive state, to be afraid, to become frightened. Now, normally when we speak about the fear of God, and we talk about it a lot, we should because the scriptures talk about it a lot, but normally when we talk about the fear of God, we talk about a reverence and an awe and a a deep respect that we should have for the Lord. I've used the analogy on many occasions that it's like the, 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 the reverence that a sailor has for the sea. I mean a real sailor, around the world sailor. Someone who who would rather be on the sea than any other place on earth, but they have a fear of the sea, a healthy fear, because they know what the sea can do. They know that at any moment it can rise up and kill them unless they are watching for it and being careful. So they have a respect. And normally when we talk about the fear that we have of God, the fear that we should have of God, we talk about that healthy, respectful, reverent fear but that's not the way the word is used here. That's not the way it's translated. Now, I, I don't want you to think that we're talking a terrified, a horrified fear like, like a prisoner might feel for his or her torturers. But this means real fear. This means to be afraid. Be afraid of the one who can send body and soul to hell. That's what Matthew actually, when he says this, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy. That is a word that means eternal ruin. Destroy both soul and body in hell. So in other words, we are called to fear God here. How are we supposed to fear God? 
In what way are we supposed to be afraid of God, the God of love that we see elsewhere? Well, on the one hand, we need to fear God because He's all-powerful. We need to fear God because this is His world, His universe, His cosmos, and He made it with just a word. There is no end to His power. We need to fear God because of His perfect holiness and His perfect righteousness. And something that most of you do not think about, you need to fear God because of His love. And you say, what? Fear God because of His love? I don't need to fear God because of His love. Oh, yes, you do. Because it's a zealous love. It is a jealous love. It is a burning fire of a love. And He will not have you worshiping another deity or changing your affection for someone else but Him. It's one thing to be mildly loved, but you're not mildly loved by God. You are intensely loved by God. So fear Him because of His love and the degree of that love. Fear Him because He is so holy that He is wrathful at our sins. Fear Him because of an ethical standard that is so high above us that none of us can keep it. Fear Him because of His justness. He must punish sins. Fear Him because He is sovereign. He's the absolute sovereign of the cosmos. Fear Him because He is the one against whom we constantly commit treason. Day in and day out. So fear God, folks. That's the second great truth that we have. Don't diminish the fear of God. Just understand it. Because we're going to get to the, the third aspect of this truth in a moment. So after telling us to fear God and really setting us on edge, then he goes and he seems to change. I'm talking about Jesus and the way Luke presents it. He seems to change gears entirely. All of a sudden, instead of talking about a God who could send us to hell, we're talking about a God who watches over us and loves us and nurtures us. Look in the sixth verse. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Um, He uses two metaphors there to draw our attention to the nurturing, the love, the attention of God for his people. And then he's going to go on and say, don't fear them. The first one that he uses is of sparrows in the marketplace. Now, most of you know what a sparrow is. It's a little bitty tiny bird. Um, can you, that's a lot of work for a couple of bites, you know. Um, but in a place like Israel, the ancient Israel, where meat was at a premium and most people were poor, to have even a couple of bites of meat off a tiny bird like a sparrow was absolutely a, a luxury. And so you, you could buy five of them for two pennies, um, or as Matthew says, two of them for a penny. I guess in Luke, they in the marketplace, they had a buy four, get one free, um, sort, of, sort of an option there. But um, it, it's the same thing. It, it's a fraction. I mean, only a few minutes of labor a day would pay for uh, a, a sparrow. But I think the significance here is the, the insignificance or the seeming insignificance, the smallness if God is looking out after sparrows, then certainly 
he is looking after you, even as he says at the end of that verse, and not one of them is forgotten before God. So God, God is paying attention to you, even if you go through times of trouble and suffering, or even as those Pharisees are plotting against you, God is watching over you because the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, I am told, and John MacArthur had this actually in his, um, in his commentary, that the average head has 100,000 hairs on it. I'm looking around, and a couple of you are probably a few less than that. Um, I, I'm starting to lose some myself. Uh, some of you look like you have more than that. But just imagine, he says that he's talking about the omniscience of God, the, the depth of his knowledge and detail. And he says every single one of your hairs, 100,000 of them, are numbered. Now, let, let's just figure this out. Let's just talk about what how the extension of that is. I got on the world clock uh, when I was writing this, and I I looked at the population of the world. Have anybody ever done that? It's kind of scary because it's like going, you know, you can't even keep up with the numbers that are being added to it. Somewhere around 8 billion people right now on the face of the planet. Now, if you had 8 billion people and each one of them has 100,000 hairs, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 810 trillion hairs. God has every one of them numbered. He knows every single one of them. When one falls out, he's aware of it. That's the omniscience of our God. That is his attention to detail. And so therefore, that's the point. Jesus is completely turning the argument around. Yes, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who can send your soul to hell. But then he's watching after his own. You see, I think in the first verse, he's talking to his disciples. I think in the second verse, he expands it, and he's talking to everyone. Everyone needs to fear, especially those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then he brings it back down and focuses on his disciples, because only the disciples of Christ, only the followers, only the believers in Jesus Christ can rest assured that God is looking after them. It is another way of saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And to, to, to realize that Jesus is indeed on our side. Now, there's two tragedies here, brothers and sisters, that are put forth here. One, that the world has ceased to fear God. And so much of that fearlessness of God, that diminishing of God, that watering down of God actually happens within the church and is all done in the name of, well, no, God is a God of love. He's not that Old Testament God of anger anymore. He's not, he's nothing to fear. He's our buddy and he's our chum. And because of that, people have lost their fear of hell. They've lost their fear of any kind of divine retribution, any kind of eternal punishment. I mean, it's almost a dirty word these days. And, and, and again, they do it and they say, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Well, do you realize what you do if you do those two things? If you diminish the, the, the wrath of God at our sinfulness and you diminish that there's a punishment, you simply negate the effectiveness of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the greater the wrath at our sins, the greater the mercy of a God who forgives those sins. The more fearful that we should be of God, the more we should appreciate that He sent His Son so that we could have a relationship with Him. 
and 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 so it's exactly the opposite. People think that they're they're speaking up for God when they're actually diminishing Him and diminishing the gospel and diminishing grace. So I want to leave you this morning, and don't think I'm leaving you in a hurry. I want to leave you with three emphatic truths. Sometimes I want to shake people, and, and, and I can't make you accept these. I can say them emphatically, but you, you, you have to embrace them, and you have to see what they mean. Now, I'm not going to make a statement in and of myself. I'm going to back everything up I say by Scripture. But there are three great truths Two of them explicit, one of them implicit. One, fear God. Two, fear hell. Three, run to Jesus. Because He's the only one who can save you from the one and reconcile you to the other. First, fear God. As I said earlier, fear God because of who He is. Fear God of, because of what He can do. Fear God in awe, in reverence, in humility, and the deepest respect. Fear God because of His holiness. Fear God because of His justness. Fear God because of the perfection of His ethical standard that none of us can keep. Fear God because He is eternal and an eternal God requires punishment that is also eternal for even one sin against Him. Fear God because He is omnipresent and He is always there to see what we do. Fear God because He is omniscient and He knows what goes on in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. Fear God because He loves you. Fear God because He will not share you with anyone. He will not share your affections. He will not share your focus. He redeemed you. He loves you. And therefore, we should fear Him. Fear Him, brothers and sisters, because the Bible tells us to. If we really believe that God's Word is inerrant and infallible, if we really believe that it is the authoritative rule for faith and practice, then the Bible tells us to fear God over and over and over again. Just the words, the fear of the Lord, are used in the Old Testament 25 times and a multitude of other times. Let me just read you a few of them from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and the trouble that comes with it. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Brothers and sisters, fear God because the Scripture tells you to, and because of who He is, and because of what He can do. 
The second great truth that I want to share with you is to fear hell. Fear hell, and I would say primarily fear hell, because of what Jesus told you. Jesus, more than any other biblical figure, warns you and me about going to hell. He uses the most graphic language to describe it. He says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out because it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man goes to hell and he's agonizing in the frame, in the flame and he cries out and he says, send Lazarus please to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Even from the Old Testament, we learn that hell is not a place we want to go to. From Isaiah, God speaking, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. From Daniel, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jude talks about hell as a place where the angels have been placed and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire but perhaps no other place in scripture is a more graphic or disturbing picture of hell given to us than the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation John sees this as he writes it down and another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name, the worshipers of the beast brothers and sisters are simply those who do not believe in Jesus and do not have a Savior. And just so you know that Satan is not going to be the ruler of hell in the 20th chapter of Revelations and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Fear hell because it is a place of anguish. Fear hell because it is an actual place. 
Fear hell because it is a place that you will be out of the presence of God. Fear hell because it is a place where you will be given over or one will be given over to their base instincts. No common grace, no goodness, no sweetness, no kindness, nothing but darkness and evil. But brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the greatest reason you should fear hell. Because Jesus came from heaven and went to a cross and died a miserable death and suffered the wrath of God so that you would not have to go to hell. Oh my goodness. Look at the suffering. Look at what he went through. Look at God's redemptive plan. Now there's other reasons that Jesus came and died on the cross, but one of them is to keep you out of hell. Tell me. That, you, that hell is not a place to fear. Fear God and fear hell. In that order, folks. Please, in that order. No one will enter the kingdom of heaven because they fear hell. It's the fear of God that leads to salvation. It's the fear of what He is and who He can do. Yeah, fear hell, but not first, not only. Fear God first and foremost. And finally, the third, albeit implied, is what to do after fearing God and fearing hell to run to Jesus because He's the only one who can save you from the one and reconcile you to the other. Run to Jesus. Because he reaches out to you and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Run to Jesus because he and he alone is the only way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. Run to Jesus because He is the bread of life, the spiritual sustenance that we need. Run to Jesus because He is the living water and those who follow and believe in Him, as the Scripture says, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Run to Jesus because He is the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Run to Jesus because he is Emmanuel and the angel told Joseph that you will call his name Jesus. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Run to Jesus because as Peter said he is the Christ the son of the living God. Run to Jesus because He's the Logos. He is the Word. He is the mind of God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and He tabernacled amongst us. Run to Jesus because He came to seek and save the lost. Run to Jesus because He is the Messiah. He is the one that Isaiah prophesied about when he said... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Run to Jesus because as John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. Run to Jesus because as Paul said to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Run to Jesus because he is a gift of God who loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Run to Jesus because he can turn you from a rank sinner, a fallen, wicked individual bound for the depths of hell. He can turn you into a child of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Run to Jesus because even now as we sit here, he prepares a place for us. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have not told you? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. <laughs> Run to Jesus because he loves you. No greater love has this than a man would lay down his life for a friend. Run to Jesus because he teaches us to love. A new commandment I give you, he said, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Run to Jesus because he's your redeemer. He is your savior. He is your friend, but He is your Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And dear brothers and sisters, understand something, that when the Apostle John wrote these words in his first epistle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He is talking about through Jesus, in Jesus, because of Jesus, and no other way but Jesus. That's the only way that we do not fear God or fear hell, is because Jesus Christ took the penalty for us. So put your faith and your trust in the one who has conquered hell, who has conquered sin, who has conquered death. So I leave you with these words, and I'm serious this time. I actually do leave you with them. Fear God. Fear hell. And run to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can save you from the one and reconcile you to the other. Amen? Let's pray. Pray with me. Our dear Lord, sometimes you're... Sometimes your word is overwhelming. And your goodness and love for us is more than we can bear. We give you the glory, dear Lord, and thank you that you would love someone like me 
and someone like those who are here so that you would go to hell so I don't have to go. Let us never lose our fear of God and let us never lose our fear of hell. And may we never recognize that when we ran to you that we were just responding to your call and that we should follow you for the rest of our lives and never for a moment fear those who can kill the body or those who will stand against us, those who will try to shut us down, try to destroy our church or destroy our school. Let us fear them not in the slightest because this is your world and you are the one who is all-powerful and you are the one who has us in hand. You are the one who tells us we are more worth than many spare us. To you be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.